and good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. How warm is it there now? Oh, you would die. You would walk out on the street and you would die immediately. That's how hot it is here. We I are think now. You said the warmest, the hottest summer you've had in a century or something? This is the hottest uh, summer on record. Um, we are now into the most consecutive days over uh, 30 degrees centigrade, which I guess is what, 85 degrees Fahrenheit? And the most uh, number of nights over 20 degrees centigrade, which is the mid-70s, are up. Uh, certainly, it was over 100 yesterday. It's going to be over 100 today, over 100 oh. tomorrow, and over 100 that after that. So That's it is, astonishing. It is appallingly hot. Uh, and it's also, just to make it you know, sort of really fun, humid at the moment as well. So they do these little sort of like comfort things where they say, you know, the temperature is, but it feels like... And routinely, it feels about five degrees centigrade hotter than it actually is. So even though it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe it's feeling like it's 110. It's one of the things that meteorologists came up with, what, 10 or 20 years yeah, ago, yeah. where they have what they call the heat index here, mm, which yeah. is this combi. And, and in, in, in the winter, they have what they call the wind chill factor. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a way of telling you that you're even more miserable than you thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you, it, arguably... I mean, there's many great things that modern meteorology has done, but it's also given you a tool to make yourself feel miserable in advance about whether you're yet to experience. You know, because they give you a 10-day forecast, mm -hmm. and you look ahead and you realize it's going to be over 100 degrees every day for the next 10 days, and you sort of think, but, 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 and you didn't know that before. So there was no real win for you in, in finding out. And certainly, for, you know, I think... No. 100 degrees is 38, 37 and a half degrees Fahrenheit, uh, 37 and a half degrees centigrade, right? So today's 38, Sunday's 38, Monday's 35, Tuesday's 37, Wednesday's 38, Thursday's 37, Friday's 20, 37. And you've already exceeded the total number of 100 plus degree days that Chicago has had, I think, in the last decade. Yeah. We do get them occasionally. But Now, uh, on the other hand, you guys seem to sort of go swanning through enormous drifts of snow and stuff, and it's barely snowed here once in my lifetime, so... Mm -hmm. But it's getting it's to the stage where people are talking about moving away. That's how hot it is. That's astonishing. Yeah. yeah. And how about over there? How's life in sunny, sunny Chicago? The last time we oh, spoke, it was sunnier. It's sunnier again today. We have uh, passed the worst part of the winter the, the historically that's very cold in january and very snowy in february and if and, and now we're all rooting for ourselves because if we get i think <laughs> 1.7 more inches it will be the snowiest february in history Woot. <laughs> but ex ex except 21 inch 22 inch snowstorm it's been little bits and, and drabs here and there and it's not been uh, inconvenient yeah. at all so i guess i mean one of the sort of it should be a similar experience but it's not I find that when it's cold, I stay in and I read a lot, and that helps me with all of my other projects and stuff. Mm -hmm. And when it's bright and sunny, I want to go out into the world and everything else. Instead, when it's really hot like this, what it tends to make me make happen is that it really just drains you, right? You don't feel like doing anything, even reading. It's sort of like watch no. DVDs or something and feel rotten. So I guess I, I, I would start – I was going to say that I assume you're getting more reading done. Right, because I just got oh, yeah. your I got your column the other day. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And that made me think about a conversation I just had, and that is it has to do with the shift to ebooks. Now we don't talk about ebooks too much here, I hope, because I'm not sure anybody knows anything. But there's been an interesting change in the last two years, and I 
I'm guessing you've noticed it as well, and that is that more and more publishers are moving to producing e-arcs rather than mm -hmm. producing actual printed arcs at all, which is which is a problem in that you know, some of Locus's reviewers, for example, won't look at them. But what's also happening is they're not telling us they're putting out e-arcs anymore. So they'll turn around and say, well, we have a website over here for reviewers to look at, to look for ARCs, and that's mm -hmm. it. We won't tell you when they come out. And what happens, and it happened with a very high-profile book that I feel badly about, even though it's a different cycle, is that you, <clears throat> a book begins to fall outside of the cycle, uh, out of the path of how, you know, how you're used to handling review books. You know, it used to be, you know, you'd hear the book gets sold, you'd hear the book gets delivered, you'd know mm -hmm. that, that an arc would be due sometime, you were already on the mailing list, the publisher sent you the, the, the arc, you put the arc in a pile, you look at it, you go, okay, now it's time to read that. Now what happens is, if you're lucky, like, the, the, well, if you look at, say, PS Publishing or Simon & Schuster Young Adult, for example, they send out a monthly email with a batch of links to the e-arcs. So at least you go off and you have a look, you decide what you want it to do. But you forget. You simply forget. Because it's easy to overlook an email or a link. And the, the example I'm thinking of, is I was reading Cory Doctorow's uh, piece about his new collection with a little help. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, he wrote a long piece about it in uh, Publishers Weekly, breaking down how he's made money for it and everything else. But one mm -hmm. of the things that's not happened is he's, not got, he's got almost no reviews for the book at all. And I, I, my first thought was, well, you know, gosh, that, that's terrible and that'll happen. Then I thought... Yeah, well, we've never seen an arc of it. And then I thought, well, hang on. I actually got an electronic copy of that from Corey directly, maybe meh, three months before it came out. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, how did I manage to let it slip? You know, And it's exactly this. It, 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 it fell through the cracks. I stopped being aware that it was there. And then every now and again, there'd be a report from Corey about you know, what he's doing. And on one hand, he's made a lot of money because he's had a lot of incidental stuff he's done. But the actual book publishing hasn't made him much money at all, really, I don't think. Um, and it, it, it just goes to this is an ongoing challenge that we're going to face into the coming years, trying to get a hold of galleys and actually make sense of them and, and, and keep, man, find a way to manage them. You know what I mean? Or f find a way to keep, uh, keep in mind that they're there, as you yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the problems, uh, one of the first times this happened to me, and it was mm -hmm. a book that I probably didn't want to review. It was one of these, uh, teen vampire girl things. Okay. Uh, and. And us available only to reviewers. If you go to this website and use this password and log in, yep. and it's not downloadable, and you have to read it on screen, and you can't put it on your Kindle. And, and at some point, at, in, in the middle of reading this email, I, I didn't email them back, but I wanted to email them back and saying, I am looking at a pile of books waiting for me to read. Why should I go? Why, why are you making me do work to find a book that you want to promote or want to have reviewed? Uh, so that's one problem. I've had this problem uh, sure. several several times where I would have an e-copy of a book, uh, either from the author or sometimes you'd send me one or the publisher would send me one, and uh, I'd put it on my Sony reader. Now I put it on my Kindle, and then I forget it's there because it's not in this pile next to me that I'm staring at. Yeah. And, 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 and when you think about, okay, what am I going to review next, you tend to look at the pile and you tend not to think I should check what's on my Kindle. Now, that's a matter of changing habits. Yeah. Um, and, and eventually uh, it'll uh, – Presumably, we'll, we'll get in the habit of doing that. But you're right; it's it, 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 the book is not in your face the way it is yeah. uh, with physical copy. Another problem that occurred to me, which may be a more academic issue, is that I was writing an essay which I which was due on the first of January. <laughs> that's another story. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I downloaded a copy of an old Lester Del Rey novel, and, mm -hmm. and it's on my Kindle. And I so I'm writing up this part of the article, and I realize I have to cite a page. 
you don't have book pages on an ebook. You have on, on my Kindle, I can say, well, this is 17%. If I'm quoting something. Well, actually, there's, there's a new download. There's a new download oh. for the Kindle. They just sent out the email last week, in the last two days, that uh, you'll be able to get page numbers off the Kindle. Oh, excellent, because that's going to create a problem with a lot of academic scholarship if you don't know where in the book uh, this is physically located. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what is the thing they usually use on the Kindle? It's not positions 1217 to 1219. I have like no that. idea. I mean, honestly, I have, I, I've never had to keep track because I'm reading, even for review, you know, I haven't reviewed in many years, but even if I'm reviewing, I don't really need to know. So I just read through, you know, I don't pay much. Oh, yeah. Through. Yeah. This only comes up when you're doing an academic paper where you need to cite a page yeah. number for a quotation. And you want to know what page is this. So that's that's OK. That's, see, Kindle is realizing that they gradually part of the problem is this partly partly the ebook industry. There are two problems. One is uh, and I remember having a conversation with um, John Barry about this, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that first of all, nobody is doing good designs for ebooks at no. all. No. Uh, they're, they're generic. They all look the same. There's always something. And I think Mark Kelly mentioned this in his blog because he just got in the Kindle. Uh, every book looks different. Every book has a kind of physical personality, which is blended into uniformity on, on any kind of an ebook format. Yeah. Uh, that's one issue. And the second issue is that, by and large, none of these have really been designed for an ebook format. So you're just basically reading generic text. Yes. Uh, and, and that changes the experience of reading it does um, you could make the argument that to some extent uh, you're it, it may level the playing field to some extent it may be that uh, you're not seduced by a by a pretty cover and a nice binding and, and a and large true. type and so and and every book looks the same uh, on the other hand it, it raises the interesting question how much of the experience of a book is in the design of a book well and, and people, a part of it people like John, go ahead no, I was going to say it's a part of it, I and mean, I was thinking about something else. And I was I was reading a galley this week, uh, last week, and it had a thick waxy cover on it. And every day I was re every time I was reading it, I felt it in my hands, and that tactile thing was part of what it was giving me as I was reading the book. Mm -hmm. So it does absolutely impact. Now you could argue that particularly for reviewing, it's a better thing to read it this way because it takes all that stuff out of the playing field, which isn't directly relevant to the book. I mean. I had a story sent to me this morning for Under My Hat, the young adult witches mm -hmm. anthology I'm reading for, and I took the moment to read it mm -hmm. myself, and I read it on the computer screen, but I forwarded it to my Kindle because Sophie, my nine-year-old daughter, was sitting beside me, and I gave her the Kindle to read the story on because I wanted her opinion of it as a young adult uh -huh. reader. And she read it that way, and there was no, there was no, no other distraction in it you were just paying attention to the story so to some degree that you know for for non uh, non non um leisure reading i actually think in some ways it's better because you don't have those distractions um you, you know you're not sitting there with a copy of the collected stories of robert silverberg feeling the heft of it in your hand feeling the nice red cloth that subterranean press have done getting those the smell of the paper and all those kind of things quietly and feeling just very sort of patrician and sort of silverbergian yourself mm -hmm. um you read it on the kindle all you're paying attention to the stories and it's, it's sometimes it's good to get that sort of distraction out of the way when you're judging it as a reader um, you know, or as a publisher, or as an editor, or something. I do think for casual reading, you lose something. 
You really do. Well, I think, uh, and, and there are examples I can think of where hmm. the design of the book does affect. Uh, sure. Scott, Scott Westerfeld's last book, Behemoth, has these wonderful end papers with this sort of 19th century cartoon map yep. of, of, of Europe and Asia Minor in it, which uh, I kept looking at that and I kept thinking, this is fun. This uh, this yes. design makes the book fun. Um, when Jedediah Berry's the, the Manual of Detection came out in this sort of beautifully 1920s sort of embossed cover, uh, the... The sense that you get from the design, the design contributes to the experience of the book. Now, admittedly, that doesn't happen with most books that have a dust jacket on them. And, and, and for that matter, there are – here's the counter-argument to that. There are books that have horrible dust jackets on them yes. that are really good books. Yes. Uh, and, and, and actually, it gets in the way of your ability to read them, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is, uh, I, sounds really shallow. But, I mean, you sit there kind of going – First of all, you feel bad. You don't, you don't want to pick it up, and then you think, oh, I'm going to have to read it. And then maybe if you're lucky, you go – this is actually better than I thought it was. But the only thing it told you it wasn't any good was a dodgy cover you didn't like. This happened when we was uh, when we were reading for the um, uh, World Fantasy Awards mm-hmm. uh, last year. And, uh, you know, all of us would get the same books, these piles of books, many of which are still on my floor. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and you tend to glance at one and throw it aside because there are so many of them. And not until, in, in one title in particular I'm thinking of, uh, uh, Kelly Link emailed mm-hmm. us and said, Ignore the cover on this because it's really good. And, and, and we all went and dug it out and we looked at the cover and said, this can't be any good. And then we started reading and it just turned out to be one of these situations. And this also has to do with the fact that book design and cover to art is, is, is all related to marketing as much yeah. as it is to content. That uh, that the designer of this book and the publisher of the book and the uh, uh, cover artist all were trying to get it at a stupider market than it belongs in, frankly. <laughs> Oh, what a terrible elitist thing you say! But yes, yes. I well, there is something to that. I, I remember know. the um, the 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 distress distress that Ted Chang felt over the tour cover of Stories of Your Life. Yeah. Uh, which did not look. There was nothing in that cover. If you remember, it's almost oh, a sure. superhero I know. cover that suggested anything about Ted Chang's fiction. I have to say, what it suggested to me was. In a way, the sort of cover I thought I'd get as a generic, we weren't, we were a bit busy, not paying terribly much attention to it. Cover from a from a major trade publisher. That's how I felt about that one. Um, whereas, I mean, you could imagine, uh, let's say they repackaged the Book of the New Sun, but put um, modern paranormal romancey kind of cover on it, and you picked it up. Or modern epic fantasy cover. They could, uh, I could yeah. totally see a modern epic fantasy cover being chucked on it, and someone going like. What is this book? Well, I think that uh, actually, the uh, as I recall, the original hardcovers had covers somewhat like that on them. Um, mm. And when when uh, Tor repackaged them in that uh, two-volume set, two books per volume, yeah. they did a very clever thing. They took the original cover painting and reduced it, so you actually had what I think was a Boris Vallejo cover. No, um, it wasn't. No, 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 no. Was, I think it was, was, was it Dave, Don Mates. It was a Don Mates cover. A Don Mates cover. Okay, absolutely. Yeah. It was a Don Mates cover. Uh, so they kept the same Don Mates illustration, the Captain Morgan guy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think of Don Mates, I always think of Captain Morgan. Um, <laughs> they reduced the cover illustration on a, on a matte black cover, which looked very literary uh, and very austere in a way, but yeah. had this cool little uh, painting. And I think that that was the right way to do that for Gene Wolfe because yeah. there, is, there, there, there is an element of – to be honest, of, of, of Don Mates, Frazetta, uh, yeah, Vallejo yeah. appeal to, but but there's a lot more to it, and they, they suggested that in the in the trade paper covers, they which did. I actually liked. Yes, yes, 
I think they did a lovely job with it, frankly. But and, and I mean, I, look, I've been beguiled into buying books simply because of cover and packaging, and then actually found that they matched up very well. So I mean, I don't have a problem with it, but I do think in this particular, well, in the in the game that we're in, me me uh, assembling anthologies and overseeing reviewing and you reviewing, it's good to occasionally just separate them unless they're integrally connected. I mean, Scott made a point, I think, Scott Westerfeld, with the Behem- the Leviathan books of connecting the form of the book to the text of the book very closely. Right. Now, he worked very closely with I think it's Keith Stevenson on the artwork and on the design of the book. And I believe he even began to incorporate aspects of the artwork retrospectively into the text so that it all gelled. And so I think, you know, Review, actually reviewing the book, you know, the text without the art is, is something you almost can't do in that case. Whereas if you get, say, the new Neil Stevenson novel, um, the best place to read it is somewhere like a Kindle because, first of all, any packaging is taken out of the, out of the um, equation. Right. Second of all, you stop being intimidated by it being 10,000 pages long because you're not yeah. aware of it all the time. Uh, and one thing I have become hung up on, and I realize I may be one of the few readers around who is, is I become greatly aware of the enormity of the physical volume I'm holding. And I begin to feel like, oh, my God, what am I going to get through this rather than just sitting back and relaxing and enjoying it? Well, I mean, uh, that that works both ways because, yeah. again, I can uh, – when a book uh, – that well, first of all, a book on a Kindle translates into, what, twice as many pages – uh, or more, Who knows? and uh, and you can still get the feeling that, uh, especially with that little percentage thing that I've been reading and reading and reading, and I'm 17% of the way through. You didn't have to tell me that, <laughs> but you're right. You don't have the physical un- the, the physical sense that my God, there is an entire fistful of pages that I'm yet to go through. Yeah, uh, but it's uh, I mean it's an, it's it's an issue, and one of the things I and to be honest, I think. I've only bought one or two books on the Kindle because I'm using yeah. it mostly to look at manuscripts. And Me too. Things. Do they do they give you the actual cover? Yes, uh, they do. Uh, uh, one thing that I started doing because I have to oversee the distribution of re- review copies. Occasionally, we will review a book after it comes out. And, and I don't get sent many review copies at all. And this isn't me boohooing and crying. It's just a, a practical reality of it. Um, and so what I found myself doing was going to Amazon, going to their Kindle store, and downloading the sample of the book because that let mm-hmm. me read the blurb read the first two or three chapters which is more than enough to go over assigning a book and it, it, it basically gives you a truncated version of the full kindle file and yeah you get the cover and you get the front matter and all that kind of stuff uh and quite often i mean the big profession the, the big book companies do design their um kindle files pretty well but i mean you're talking i mean you and john were talking about uh the lack of design and on one hand it's completely true but the other thing is that because because the industry is yet to arrive on a standard form for ebooks, mm-hmm. it becomes very difficult to enhance that form. You know, and this this was the great problem back in the early days of CD and everything. In fact, even even more so than in the early days of um, video, when it was when it was being you know sort of wheeled out to the customer you know, the consumer market, you you couldn't do much with it because people hadn't actually decided were we going to be VHS or Beta, were we going to be right. if yeah, whose CD te- technology we're going to use, um, and even more so later on when they tried to bring out digital compact cassette and a few other things. So whenever you bring in a new form, it's it's always a problem. And the problem right now, obviously, for ebooks is that there's no standard form, and none there's no standard source to get your ebook and all that kind of thing. So, uh, and that really does impact hugely. 
every 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 question that comes up like this is has some kind of parallel back in mm-hmm. uh, in history, of course. And one of the the, the, the most recent parallel, I guess, fifty years ago, uh, was was when books came out in paperback and were extremely misleading, uh, sometimes mm-hmm. retitled. Uh, I've, I've got because I, I, I for a while collected old paperbacks and I still have a bunch of them somewhere. Uh, it was wonderful to see William Faulkner novels coming out from Signet looking like steamy historical romances. Um, this, uh, the, 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 I remember Sanctuary was done that way. There was mm-hmm. a famous novel about uh, a missionary. I can't remember the name of the author. It's a bestseller back in the early yeah, 50s. Yeah. Called The title of the book was Heaven Knows Mr. Allison. But not in the paperback. The paperback, it was The Flesh <laughs> and the Fury. So that's, in other words, the idea of trying to repackage books for something they're not is, sure. is, is not good at all. So let me ask you this question. This sort of slides slides around. I mean, uh, we haven't we ha- we have no solution to how you handle digital arcs at the moment. Maybe the peop- maybe somebody will come up with a nice piece of software that will help reviews editors and reviewers manage this. But you know, but since since we both have Kindles, mm-hmm. what are you reading on the Kindle right now, Gary? As it turns out, this is interesting because I began. Uh, I, I, I'm reading Embassy Town. Okay. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I've started it three times now. And this is how different the experience is. Uh, first of all, I, I, I got a, a copy for the Kindle. Not the final copy. It's not out yet, but a version of it for the Kindle. And I started reading it. And there were some wonky things. It clearly had not been designed for a Kindle. It was simply a manuscript. Then I got uh, uh, one of these big uh, uh, plastic-bound uh, 8.5 by 11 arcs. Yeah. which was really awkward. I really hate those things. And finally, uh, I got the actual arc for it. Um, and I find myself gravitating toward the thing that looks most like a real book. Interesting. Um, it, it, was, it, was, it was very interesting because the Kindle is very convenient to read on when you're lying in bed and so forth and so mm-hmm. on. But there was still this sense, and this is going to be a problem for reviewers, maybe not for everybody. Actually, there was an article in the New York Times a couple of uh, days ago yeah. about this. What do you do about making marginal annotations? Now, I know you can do that on a Kindle. Yeah, but not in the way you can with a book. True. Um, and the article in the New York Times is about um, looking at uh, a collection. I think there's a display somewhere in New York of annotated copies of famous books that are annotated by famous people. In other words, sure. yeah. books from books from Mark Twain's library that he has wisecracks in the yeah. in the margin. And the question is, is that going to go away? Uh, well, hang on. Did you ever write in a book, Gary? Uh, actually, not. I didn't argue with the book in the way Mark Twain did. Um, I would I would make notes to myself uh, for a review in the margins of a book, and uh, and and huh. over the years as I've gotten more sophisticated about that, um, I just make a couple of hieroglyphic marks like I want to do this or that, so I don't actually write in the margins anymore. Huh. And and I can do something similar to that on a Kindle by simply bookmarking a page, and when I go back to that page, I'll know what it was that I wanted to say. So I'm I'm learning how to do it, but it's it is a it is learning a new kind of reading. I'm fascinated. I've been reading for 40 years, Gary. I doubt that I've ever written in a book. Never once when I was reviewing. Never. Really? Yeah. Never. Would never have occurred to me to write in a book. You probably were. You probably were raised to worship books as iconic objects that you never deface. No, no, I don't think I really was. It just would never have crossed my mind. I mean, I knew that you didn't write in books, just a general rule of thumb. It's the kind of thing that any parent teaches a little kid, because for any little kid, a book is a potential coloring book, right? So. Sure. Uh, but after that, I mean, when I was reviewing, yeah, I had, I had a notebook or I had post-it notes or I had something. And a few times I'd like scribble on a post-it note and slap that in the in the arc. But even that was unusual. 
Um, so no, it would never have occurred to me to do it. And so I find well, it curious that it, that it becomes a factor for anybody later on. You know, I was surprised to hear that, Martin, that Mark Twain used to write in books. I mean, my gosh. Oh, Mark Twain used to. Uh, and, and, and sometimes the annotations to the books were absolutely hilarious. Um, but now that you mention it, I, I guess I do tend to write in arcs and not in finished copies of books. Mm-hmm. Simply because of uh, the sense that uh, you know you, you've defaced a book. I've, I've heard stories of of writers. I think Chip Delaney told me this once. Uh, you know, going into a bookstore and deciding, well, I'll sign copies of my books, and then getting thrown out for defacing the books. Mm. Um, so 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 there is a sense, especially that you know the value of books may be lessened if you're thinking about reselling. But I, I've never thought in terms of a collector. So. So yeah, I will uh, rather than try to write notes on a separate pad of paper, especially if I'm lying yeah. in bed and I've got sure. a pencil next to me. The one thing I have learned to do is to use pencils instead of uh, pens to do that. Okay. Uh, just in ca- just in case I want to go back and erase. Yeah. You suddenly made me think back to 1985 when David Brin nearly closed the local specialty SF bookstore because we were having. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. We, it was. AussieCon 2, I think, was on that year, and he was touring, and so was Anne McCaffrey, and Anne McCaffrey had been before. And the small, specialty bookstore that had been open for about a year and a half uh, decided it would have a big David Brin signing, and they got copies of, like, every book he had at that point in time. It's probably four or five titles, I guess. And the, the distributors gave them every copy they had. They had hundreds and hundreds of David Brin books. And David, now I don't think he, he did not do this maliciously because I don't think it occurred to him that it happened that it was a different distribution system. But he sat there and he signed them all. He wasn't asked to, but he signed them all. Mm-hmm. And when I went to return them, they wouldn't take any of them back. Oh, really? Because they're all damaged stock. They didn't care they were signed on. Hmm. You, you know, so, you know, there you go, right? It's just like, hmm, yes. So, I remember yes, a, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the, there was a, uh, a friend of mine who, uh, a guy who actually died several years ago, but he was a guy named Vince Miranda, who was a delightful person. Uh, his his, his uh, widow is still alive and still. But he was very, uh, very active in the um, International Conference on the Fantastic. But he was uh, also, for years, the science fiction editor of the Saturday Evening Post, okay. uh, long after the Saturday Evening Post had been defunct and was sort of resurrected. Uh, and he told me a story about writers coming up to him. Uh, he was he was at a convention, I guess, looking at some writer's book, and the writer was behind them. And the writer said, "Let me sign that for you." And he wrote, uh, "What's your name?" And my name is Vince. And, and Vince is com- completely nonplussed by this. And the guy writes to Vince, and and and, and hands it to him, and, yeah. and 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 Vince says, "I wasn't going to buy it. I was just looking at it." And puts it back on the pile. <laughs> um, so, so so writers can get too enthusiastic about that sort of thing. But I have another question about the Kindle, which might have. Yes impact on you as an anthologist, there was something, again, I was reading or somebody was tweeting about uh, that uh, Kendall and a couple of other, uh, well, this has been going on for a while, are publishing novella length, um, uh, nonfiction books at least, mm. and selling them for cheaper prices. Mm-hmm. My question is, is there going to be a market uh, for 99 cent novellas on the Kindle, on ebooks, for short stories that you just buy individually and not wait for an anthology or a magazine? Not in the short term, is my first answer. Mm-hmm. My, my, my gut reaction is no, and I've, I've got a reason why no. And part mm-hmm. of me goes, I can see that. Okay, I can certainly see the logic. Give people what they want. Give them a cheaper book. All that kind of stuff. However, 
you know, whenever you talk to or whenever you hear a, a writer talking about the value of having a publisher, they talk about distribution mechanisms and all these other sorts of things, which are completely mm-hmm. valid. And what I wonder is, uh, and you do see it with um, these, I think what they call them, Kindle dailies or whatever else. And I think yeah. a few other places have tried it. I think Angry Robot have tried it and Orbit maybe tried it. It's getting people aware that they exist, you know. Uh, it's it, it would not be hard to produce a an ebook of a uh, Al Reynolds novella say and he's got a very well established readership yeah exactly and let him you know let, let people sort of have a re- you know let, let people buy it read it and all that kind of stuff uh, however you have to get it into a distribution mechanism otherwise nobody will be aware that it exists and it's too easy i mean we're we're talking about how with with ARCs, with advanced reader copies, uh, you can lose track of them because they're a link. And I know mm-hmm. I've heard music reviewers saying, you know, they get they get sent a download link, and that that's valid for a certain period of time. That's all they get, and so they lose track of that. I don't I don't know that there's at least yet a, a mechanism where you you would be aware that these things even existed. You know, uh, never mind that there was someone who's going to put enough design effort into it to make it a desirable thing. Uh, Pyre just recently. Put a lot of effort into putting into putting together a sample uh, ebook of a James Engie novelette, which they were giving away for free to help promote James, James Engie. But I mean, they worked for weeks and weeks and weeks to produce this thing. They got special art for it. They made sure the design was good. They well, lo- loving kind of attention you'd pay to a really handcrafted thing. Beautiful. But are you going to do that for every one of them for a ninety-nine cent book? I don't know that you I would. Don't th- well, I, I, I don't think that there's any. I mean, obviously, we're, we're not talking about the amount of really good fiction which is available for free and downloads and has been yeah. for years now in Clark's world and that sort of thing. And I don't believe there will ever be a market for uh, an unknown writer to simply put something up on iTunes and expect people to pay for it any more than unknown musicians are able to do that. Yeah. Uh, but you look at something and, and James Ingy being nominated uh, for a World yeah. Fantasy Award. Yeah. If you, look, you look at something like Ted Chang's The, so- the Life Cycle of Software sure. Objects. Everybody knows this is a major writer of short fiction. This is a major work. This is mm-hmm. uh, uh, only a, a, a small edition, a relatively small edition, is, is being you know, printed by Subterranean. And would people pay for that online? I don't know. I mean, uh, I think it's been devilishly clever of my devilishly clever friend Bill to uh-huh. have it up there for nothing. Mm-hmm. Now, what would be a, a really interesting experiment, and I doubt that Bill Schaefer, who runs Subterranean Press, listens to this. It would be interesting to see Bill hand over well, – in fact, take the design from the chat book or the, the small books, not not chat book at all, that they did for the hardcover of Lifecycle of Software Objects, mm-hmm. reflect it in an ebook design, and then flog it for a couple of bucks off the Subterranean website alongside the free download. Um, mm-hmm. Which is the kind of challenge he would he might rise to because I wonder whether the, what, you know it would be interesting to see someone test to see whether there's a market for a well-made ebook right now. That's exactly. I guess that's essentially the question I'm talking about. And I, I don't know. If, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that either. Um, and certainly when it comes well, to the torrent of electronic information question, I mean, uh, with the last short story on Earth Group that I read with, who are the short story readers that also are a chunk of Galactic Suburbia, because Tansy and Alex and uh, Elisa, mm-hmm. but also Ian and um, Sarah read for it, so there's the six of us. And we've been uh, coming to terms with the daily, the daily SF thing, which puts out it's one story a day. Right. And all other things aside, it's a very transitory thing. You know, you get an email, you put it in a folder, you maybe have a look at it. Uh, it's up on the website for a day, you know. It's the same kind of thing. Keeping track of it is just not a thing we're yet accustomed to. Yeah, I think that's a problem. 
Um, mm, I do too. Well, so. okay. Shifting topics a minute. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you think about the Nebula nominations? I think it's a very interesting ballot. I think it's going to be quite different from the Hugo ballot. I mm. think there are encouraging things about it, and I think there are curious things about it. I think it's encouraging because there's a lot of new writers involved, and I think it's always mm. good to see new writers involved. I think it's inter- it's interesting and commendable because it has a lot of diversity on the ballot. I think that's a good thing as well. We're seeing a lot of uh, electronic stuff coming in as well. That's also encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say that as you drift down the the ballot that they've put out, and, and, and to be fair, when I say drift down, you know, they it's actually a physical thing. They, they just lift, list them by novella, novel, novella, novella, novelette, short story. Right. It becomes a more curious affair, you know, because there's so much more stuff to, to, to sift through. But I think um, the, the novel category, which is like the big one, Really, I mean, I was surprised and unsurprised by it. I'm d- delighted beyond words that Nadia Korafor's Who Fears Death is on the ballot because I think it's mm-hmm. one of the best books of the year. And to get it on the Nebula ballot is exactly, not only is it the right place for it, but it's one of those cases where you can take mass voting out of it a little bit because Nettie's mm-hmm. not necessarily that well known that she would make a Hugo ballot yet. But, you know, her book belongs in the, in the best of the year. Um I'm unsurprised that Connie Willis's uh, Blackout All Clear is there. I think, you know, that's plainly one of the major books of the year. Uh-huh. Of the remainder, I, I think it's, it's quite interesting. I, I think the, I may misremember this, but I think the M.K. Hobson book, The Native Star, might have been up for the Philip K. Dick Award. Um, he stops and he has a look and asks himself whether that's the case, and I don't sort of see it, so I don't know. Um there was an awful lot of good press for the Mary Robinette Cowell novel, Shades of Milk and Honey. I know Tansy Roberts loved the book. I've not read it, but uh, I heard lots of good things about it, so that's nice. Uh, the Nora Jemison novel, The Hundred Thousand Kingdoms, has had fantastic press. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not particularly surprised to see it there at all. There are a couple of books that I kind of expected to see, and probably the one for me glaring omission is The Dervish House by Ian MacDonald. Yeah. I genuinely thought it was a almost a no-brainer, you know. So, th- And yet, arguably, and I've had a little bit of a conversation about this, and I don't know how you feel, I'd love your opinion, the most surprising one in some ways is the Jack McDevitt book Echo, which there hasn't been a lot of discussion of, you know. I haven't, I've not read Echo. I mean, I know Jack McDevitt's work. And, oh, sure. Uh, what strikes me is that that stands out, well, Connie Willis is essentially in a category by herself because oh. she has... Her own group of readers. She writes his story. You know, she, she's carved out her own territory. Uh, apart from Connie, Jack McDevitt is the only really traditional uh, old line science. He's the writer, old guard. The only male writer on on, on the ballot. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's 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 interesting that there's it seems to be there's always going to be a um, a group of writers, yeah. and a lot of this has to do with the makeup of of, of the SFWA these days. Uh, but there's always going to be a group of writers who wants uh, something close to hard science fiction on it. Yeah. Now, why they would not include Ian McDonald uh, is, is is kind of a puzzle to me. Um, well, we don't know how close a, he came to making the list. No, but it's a list which, is, if I'm not mistaken, is all Americans. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess so, yes. Well, I don't, I don't know about M.K. Hobson, but I would assume uh, so, yes. Mm-hmm. 
um, at least at, at the novel level. Um, and, and, and let's be honest. I mean, Jack McDevitt is a very reliable writer. He does not write boring books. He doesn't write particularly innovative books, but they're they're well crafted. He's uh, somebody who is uh, neither disappoints nor shocks readers. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Let me put it more the way that uh, our very good friend and colleague Russell Letson would put it, and would say that he's one of the most reliable uh, straight science fiction writers out there, who's had a long uh, career of writing. I mean, he's won Nebulas before. Yeah. You know, so it's yeah, you know, it's just sort of it seems out of context. It's it's a little bit like looking at at a modern Hugo or uh, Nebula ballot and suddenly seeing Niven and Pornell on there again after however many years it is since they they they, they appeared there. There's a yeah. There's a. I, I don't know if you ever got Sesame Street in Australia, but there were the song they used to sing. Which of these things is not like the other? And that's exactly what I thought about the Jack McDevitt book. There, of course, is another one of those things that isn't like the other, isn't there? On the short story, there's a tiny man. How interesting! Oh, that's that's interesting. I looked that up because I was curious. I, I've not seen Harlan. I looked it up. Uh, Harlan's not had a. For somebody who legendarily at one point had won more awards than anybody yeah. uh, ever in the field, he's he's won three Nebulas. And the last one was, I believe, Jeff, Jeff D. is five uh, yep. in 1977 or 78. So that seems to be a, a, a kind of a shout out. And again, I haven't read the story. but uh, I've read the story. Okay. Um, any thoughts about why it's there? Oh, not public ones, no. <laughs> well... Fine. Um, let me put well, you, let it put it let me put it to you this way. Uh, you say quite rightly that Harlan has won three nebulas. He he won the nebula for Repent Harlequins of the TikTok Man, A Boy and His Dog, and Jeff is Five. Right. Right. And the last time he was nominated was for a story called Goodbye to All That, which I'm sure is emblazoned in your memory. This is frankly, on a good day, uh, this new story is a minor work by Harlan. You know, if I were charged with the happy task of doing the best of Harlan Ellison, how interesting a tiny man would not be on the list. Um, the reason I don't want him to win for this story is because I don't think it stands alongside the three stories that he's already won the Nebula for. You know, I, I wonder, frankly, since we're being in politics, I wonder if his friends in the science fiction writers of America nominated him around the time when they thought he was making his final ever convention experience appearance. It could very well be. I don't think he's nominated in the way that he had. I don't think this is something that even he would disagree with. There was a period of time when Harlan was nominated for everything. And to some extent, there's, uh, there's, there's this effect you see to some extent with Neil Gaiman. Uh, there's a sense that, uh, well, here, let, let me let me tell you a story about a completely different kind of convention mm -hmm. uh, that I used to go to, called the uh, Popular Culture Association. Okay. Which for for years before even before the um, Science Fiction Research Association, before the International Conference of the Fantastic, and really before there was any kind of um, uh, academic aspect to to WorldCon or, or World Fantasy. The Popular Culture Association was one of the places where you could go to deliver papers on science fiction, fantasy, television, comics, media, and so forth and mm -hmm. so on. They, they, and way back at the beginning of my career, they instituted something called the Popular Culture Achievement Award. Yep. And they started giving it out. I remember one year they gave it to Mary Tyler Moore when that program was popular in the States. They, uh, they tried giving one to uh, – I can't remember who the various people were. And, of course, nobody ever showed up. Yeah, uh, because this was a it was a large academic convention, two or three thousand people, 
but it was nothing by the standards of Hollywood. So they kept giving these awards to people who didn't show up until they got embarrassed. It's something Hugo people could think about. And, and eventually they started calling people up and saying, if you'll show up, we'll give you this award. And that <laughs> way they, sometimes yeah, we yeah. get a celebrity. Yeah. Um, I, I know from having talked to con committees and, and, and people in the past that super celebrity writers, and Stephen King is always at the top of this list, that you, know, you want to nominate people for awards to get them there because yeah. you know that they'll put on a good show. You know sure, they'll be terrific sure. when they're there. Uh, and, and extremely popular writers, people who are personally popular, who are uh, – and by popular, I mean people who will generate discussion when they show up, not just people who are beloved, but people who are uh, going to create chaos. Uh, sometimes we get nominated for awards simply because we'd love to have them there. Yeah, uh, yeah we'd, sure. we'd love to see them. We'd love to – you know, we, mm -hmm. we just want to see them. We want to get them to show up. Yeah. And um, I, I, I don't, don't think that's – characteristically happen, but I think it's happened sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I think it happens with writers of excessive celebrity. I mean, I think one of the reasons that Stephen King gets nominated for awards, many of which he's deserved, some of which he hasn't, and I think this is more or less over, but um, there was always a hope, maybe if we nominate him for an award, he'll show up. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if anybody consciously thought that, and I don't know if there was ever been a conspiracy to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's always been a factor. I do think it's interesting looking down the list, which I just grabbed, is yeah. that uh, there's in almost every category there is one uh, kind of old school nomination. You mentioned McDevitt. Um, there's uh, Jeffrey Landis story, which is a now, good Jeffrey Landis. It is story. a very good Jeffrey Landis story. It's I have a very to good Jeffrey Landis. I'm not saying that it's not a good yeah. story, but I'm he good. is again I, I, that novella category. It's missing one or two I'd like to see there. But I've got to say, it's got some greats. I mean, the Ted Chang story is a good story. The Landis story is very good. The Paul Park story is very good. And the Rachel Swirsky story is very, very good. Mm -hmm. I am surprised to see the Bacigalupi story there, simply because it's actually eligible based on its audio publication, not its print publication. That's right. The print publication was this year, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And I know, mm -hmm. because I've seen um, a comment from John Scalzi somewhere saying it is eligible based on its audio publication. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. not, not a complaint. Interesting. But yes, you're right. Uh, actually, what's interesting is the um, Landis is probably the most traditional name in the novella category. Uh, the Swirsky story is quite a traditional story in, in itself. So that's well, yes, it is. So uh, you know, it's just interesting, um, and it's a nice blend of places for stories to come from. Um, probably the least familiar name there would be Kathleen Cheney with Iron Shoes from Olympic or two, but. Um, the, the Chang story, I mean, I, I look, I would love to have seen Troika by Al Reynolds there. I would love to have seen um, the latest of the Dragon Girl stories from Lucia Shepard there. Lucia Shepard, yeah. Uh, and there's one or two others. But, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily move anything off that, even though I will say that at, was it six stories? That's a lot of stories on a ballot, you know. But it's mm. it's good. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good novella ballot. Um, what I find, though, is when I look further down, I realize just how – how diverse a year it was for short fiction and how not much actually really dominated the year. You know, and I, this is my experience compiling the year's best five and my experience talking to people. There were good stories, but, and so you can put together the, the like say the novelette category, which has a terrific Christopher Barzak story and a really right. uh, Jim Kelly story. Um, and the rest of them are, I mean, uh, less familiar. I mean, I know the names, and I'm obviously I read the stories, but you know, I, I mean, Elliot mm -hmm. uh, de Bodard from from Asimov's. I think it's got. I mean, when you get down to the next cat, uh, this cat is this. This is the first time 
Is this the first time there have ever been two realms of fantasy stories on a Nebula ballot? Is this the first time there have ever been two realms of fantasy stories on a ballot? Period. Hmm. Because good question. I you know, don't know the answer to that. So that's interesting. Um, and also, dare we say it in the in the novelette category, an analog story. That's a good point. And it's not a story that I know, but analog does not show up on these ballots very often. No. And I was, it's interesting. I was going to say in, in every category. It's funny because I'm guessing 20 years ago, uh, if, if you had found one woman on the ballot or one fantasy story or one kind of slipstream story or one kind of semi-mainstream story, it would have been news. Now it's almost news to see one fairly traditional story. And in the novelette I would have thought the uh, analog story at all, and the Jim mm. Kelly story, the James Patrick Kelly story, is excellent. It's a terrific story. It is. It is. But I would have, I would have picked out James Patrick Kelly as being quote unquote the more traditional name in that. Yes, uh, yes, I list. think that's probably a fair thing. And then obviously, in short story, there's Harlan, and there's a little part of me that wants to sort of say more about him, but we can leave him. We can, we can let Harlan go for the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the I think Ponies by Kids Johnson is a really interesting story. Um, the Amal El Motar story, uh, the Green Book, is terrific and has had lots of lots of good press, and so I'm not surprised to see that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's there are other short stories again I would have put on there. Um, I think, in fact, none of those are actually in my year's best uh, in the short story category. Uh, so it goes to show that I had a different reading of the year. I will say this: Let's. Pl- do, do you want to play the game, Gary? Are we going? Oh, to, are we going to actually handicap the Nebulas? I don't know enough of the story. I don't know. I don't know enough of the short fiction to do that knowledgeably. I would guess that Ted Chang is the front runner for a novella. I would think uh, so. I mean, and, uh, yeah. And 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 it's it's one of those things also where you wonder what the um, what the steamroller effect is with somebody like Paolo Bacigalupi. Sure. Uh, there, there, there's a sense on everybody's part that well, he's got a chance of maybe winning more awards in one year than almost anybody ever has. Could be, uh, and this I'm is sure his least has. typical story, probably yet. It's a fantasy story, so it's a it's a fantasy story. It's a fantasy story based on a world that he more or less co-invented with mm-hmm. Toby Buckell, and Toby's story, unfortunately, is not there. So it's a I shared world story. story. It's a shared world story. Yeah, I mean they, they worked it out by themselves. Yeah, um, and uh, the, the, there's a very clever part to publish mm-hmm. them as two separate booklets when they're really united. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think there, there, there's a steamroller effect there. I think Shipbreaker, as under the Andre Norton Award, when we get into the actual non-nebulas, yep. uh, Shipbreaker absolutely belongs there. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, well, let me put it this way: this is the way I might. Okay, this this is not a handicap handicap, but the mm-hmm. most obvious winners based on history would be Connie Willis for novel, right? Ted, Ted Chang for novella, Jim Kelly right. for uh, novelette. And Harlan Ellison for short story. Um, I have to say again, I'm not sure that how interesting a tiny man. I mean, I was looking at the. Li- have you looked at the full list of Harlan's Nebula nominations? Uh, no, not recently. Har- Har- Harlan has been nominated 16 times for three wins. Wow. Now, a couple of those aren't short stories, but this is the these, these are the short stories he's been nominated for: Repent Harlequin, Pretty Maggie mm. Money Eyes, Shattered Like a Glass Goblin, Boy and His Dog, The Region Between, Basilisk on the Downhill Side. The Deathbird, Shatter Day, Jeff Dears Five, Paladin of the Lost Hour, parenthetically my, my pick for his last great story, The Man Who mm-hmm. Rode Christopher Columbus Ashore, Mephisto and Onyx, and Goodbye to All That. I'll put to you that you could do a Best of Harlan Ellison that was nothing but those stories up to... I was up to Goodbye and All That. 
Uh, I would agree. I mean, those those are all terrific stories, and some of them, and 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 they all represent different phases of his career, and 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 so forth and so on. So so yeah, I mean, the, the, there's there's an argument to be made that those are his best stories. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a lot of those stories, a lot of the more recent stories on that list, were one of he was writing many fewer stories. Oh yeah. Uh, in 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 the eighties, seventies, and eighties. Uh, but yeah, by and large, there was uh, that's that's an impressive list. It is, and, and uh, so I'm not sure this story belongs with those. I mean, the, the Nebula votership will do as they should and make their own decision. And it's not a very long story; it doesn't take a lot of time to read, and I'm sure it'll but, be made available to them. But yeah, I don't know. Well, I I, I, I kind of well, hope it's something else. Well, but but what you're talking about when you're when when you're handicapping is you're simply looking at voting histories yeah. and what it's like. And I wonder if voting history might be changing. I wonder if, um, for example. I mean, I, I think Ted Chiang's fiction is so rare and so uniformly excellent that he probably, uh, given voting patterns, might will probably will win over Paolo uh, Bacigalupi. But okay. there is this mm -hmm. there's this habit that people get into of thinking, "Wow, let's you know, let's see if he can set a record." Well, I got to say, I wouldn't be surprised to see Mary Reb Robinette Cowell win. Um, mm. I think there's every good chance that Paolo or even Rachel Swirsky might might win in novella, though Ted is by overwhelmingly the most likely. Um, I think Jim Kelly remains the most likely in novelette, though Chris Barzak uh, has had a lot of good press, and I think I was Elliot very de, fond of that story. Yeah, yeah, and Elliot de Bodard is getting more widely known, so there's that. I think Kids Johnson actually at awards time has quite a bit of momentum behind her as well. Um, so there's that versus, again, the very good That's press true. that uh, the Green Book uh, by Amal Al-Motar has received. So it would be interesting. I, I, you know, in an actual reading them all to handicap them, I, I, I wouldn't even begin to want to get too close to it. But it's interesting. Now, then there's the Ray Bradbury Award. And I have to say it falls into the category of I don't care very much. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm curious about the Ray Bradbury Award in one way. Yep. And that is the Ray Bradbury Award effectively replaced the Best Script Award. Yep. Now. What has distinguished the Nebulas from just about any other award in the field is that it is an award for writing. Now, I realize the Ray Bradbury Award is technically not a Nebula, but nevertheless, yeah. a, ne a Nebula writing category has been eliminated, uh, best script. And it's been replaced by a, a kind of general media award, which yeah. is, not, is not specifically a recognition of writing. Yeah. Um, and that strikes me as being a bit odd. And e even when you look at the list of uh, nominees, for the Ray Bradbury Award, they're simply titles. It's not. Yeah. They're, they're not listing yeah. screenwriters. No. Uh, they're not. It's for the uh, movie. Yeah. It's it's, for, it's, for, it's for the movie essentially, and that strikes me as, as as a major shift in the Nebula Awards, saying that okay, when it comes to media, we're giving up on writers basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to I'm, I'm trying to check something just to see if that's the case because I actually have I have some behind the scenes information, Gary. Oh, uh, <laughs> I was asked if I would do the. I just, just want to look at the actual text of the, of the nomination. I was sent a copy of the uh, of something to proofread. Aha! You uh -huh. see, the actual what you're seeing on the Locus website is actually a, a, a shortening of everything. The full title of the award is the Ray Bradbury Award for Outstanding Dramatic Presentation, and the full um, nomination actually lists the writers and the directors of the film. So, well, in the case of Despicable Me, it lists Pierre Coffin and Chris Renault, the directors, Ken Dorio and Paul Chinko, or Chinko Paul, who wrote the screenplay, and Sergio Pablos, who wrote the original story. Um, so, actually, the, the full nominations are actually for those people. So, I'm not sure well, that this okay. runs away completely. It's just that it's been synopsized on the ballot copy that you've seen. 
Well, still, for dramatic presentation, is not the same thing as for best screenplay. Fair or enough. Best script. Fair enough. But then also, uh, I mean, but then the under. The yeah. Okay. I was going to say, in the, in the case of Inception, it's essentially the same thing. The director and writer are the same person. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, the, but the rest of these things, I'm sure that if we racked our brains for a moment, we could think of really good dramatic presentations uh, in which the scripts were not particularly outstanding. Sure, and, sure. And really good scripts in which the dramatic presentation wasn't really outstanding. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have to say, that said, it's a pretty good batch of stuff. I mean, all the animated films I loved. Mm -hmm. It's a very sentimental episode of Doctor Who. Uh, but not bad. I haven't seen Inception. Mm. So, you know, something will win. I'd be probably happy with anything to win. That's fine. It's, a, it's, it's the Nebulas yeah. honoring a movie. Knock themselves out. Well, um, the, thing is, the Nebulas and the Hugos do, do this as well. I mean, they've always done this. They've uh, You nominate movies and you nominate, I don't know, you nominate, I think Steven Spielberg gets nominated for Minority Report. Yeah. Uh, and I go back to that thing that there's some vague thing in the back of people's mind. Maybe he'll show up. No, he's not going to show up. <laughs> you know, there's going to be second assistant publicist much might show up for some of these things. Uh, but by and large, the writing world in Hollywood, and uh, these are, if I'm not mistaken, except for Doctor Who, all Hollywood productions, yep. uh, it's a different world. It's, yes. it's not the yes. same world in which our writers work. No, no, it's not. Uh, I mean, that said, I do remember they sent, was it the, the, the chap who played Sam from the, the Lord of the Ring movies to pick up the Hugo that year. So every now and again, they'll do something a bit different. I do like the look of the Andre Norton Award, though. Mm-hmm. I am a bit sort of puzzled they managed to get eight, nominate, eight nominees in there. Um, and there's two books I've never heard, two writers I've never heard of, frankly. Yeah, right. Um, but I've read uh, three, four, five of the eight titles. And it's a good list. It's a really good list. I mean, Shipbreaker by Paolo Bacigalupi is a terrific book. Uh, mm -hmm. White Cat by Holly Black is the best novel-length uh, novel work of her career. Uh, and was a you know much much um, superior book to her earlier novels, which I enjoyed. So yeah, it's really terrific. Mockingjay is a great finish to the Susan Collins thing, and it's actually a, is is one of two at least YA science fiction books there. I mean, we're always talking about where's the YA science fiction? Mm. Susan Collins, Paolo Bacigalupi, bringing it in. I don't know the Barry Deutsch book or the Pearl North book. I Shall Wear Midnight Night is the last, I believe, of the Tiffany Aching novels by mm -hmm. um, Terry Pratchett and is a wonderful book. It's a really good book. So you can maybe begin to see I mean, I, I know that our mutual friend uh, Farah Mendelssohn did not like this novel. Uh, and she felt that you could – she said it was a bit like li listening to someone talk and you could hear them catching their breath all the time because they're short of breath because they were ill. And she felt mm – -hmm. I didn't notice that, frankly. So I, I liked it much better than she did. I haven't read uh, the uh, Megan Whale and Turner novel. And Behemoth is another terrific book, and I'm looking forward to the final book in that set from Scott Westerfeld. So a good ballad and a good thing to see happening. Yeah, it's always difficult to, 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 to deal with a middle book in a, in a mm. trilogy. Mm. Um, but one of the things that uh, is interesting to me about this, and I don't know because I've not kept up with the various interviews. Suzanne Collins is uh, – well – in the outside of our field, I imagine Suzanne Collins has the highest profile of anybody on this list. Sure. Uh, and I have no no real sense of what her relationship to the field is because no. I've had I've had I've had different reactions to this. I remember uh, when uh, actually I think you called it to our attention this wonderful young adult writer named Kathleen Dewey. Yes. Yes. 
uh, and, uh, and and she was, I think, nominated for a National Book Award. Even she and was. We had not, we had not, nope. Yeah, we'd not reviewed her first novel. Yeah. And then, of course, what Charles, uh, who has the kind of chutzpah that you and I probably don't have, mm. read the novel and called her on the phone, and now she is perfectly delighted to be sort of mm-hmm. uh, you know in, in in this world. I mean, she's she's yes. communicating with us. She's excited. I don't know whether Suzanne Collins is in that category or not. I don't know if uh, she is. I should also say we have to allow that. Charles's chutzpah actually went well beyond that. He picked up the phone. He started talking to her and then began telling her how she was doing it wrong. Yeah, of course. But that's what he does. That's what he did, yes. And but, somehow he convinces people to listen to him when he does that. Yes. Well, that's well, but usually, usually because he was intelligent enough to actually make his case, I think, mm. rather than just – you know, it wasn't an abusive call. I loved your book. It's really terrific. But this is how you should structure a trilogy. You're not stri- – you're going to have to do a fourth book. And it's kind mm-hmm. of like, oh, no, no, no. So. <laughs> So yes, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it's I think it's quite an interesting ballot. It'll be interesting to see how it uh, tracks across to the um, the Hugo Awards, which will come out in April, I guess, and to see how they they compare because they've got similar categories, of course. So that that'll be interesting. Okay, um, okay. Here's, here's here's I have a suggestion for an anthology for you. Oh, thank you. And I just. I discovered this only earlier this evening, and I can't exactly tell you how I discovered it, but it has to do with, with people who are non – it has to do with United States immigration and work laws. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered, I was writing a letter of recommendation for a friend who wants a job in the United States, and it's actually somebody you know, but I can't say who it is. And it turns out one of the categories that permits somebody to get a green card, which you know about, um, is titled literally – Alien of Exceptional Ability. <laughs> now, I think you should do an anthology called Aliens of Exceptional Ability because it's like Klaatu should have – if Klaatu had known about that, the whole the whole story would have been – he wouldn't have needed Gort. Um, oh, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. What people should have to do is that the, the starting point for their story would have to be uh, what would you write as a to support a green card application for your alien? For your alien. Exactly. Right. What is the exceptional ability? Um for some reason, okay. This the, the, the mm-hmm. reason I mentioned this leads into Thomas Jerome Newton. Does that? No, I've never heard the name before. No, never. Thomas Jerome Newton is the name of the character played by David Bowie in *The Man Who Fell to Earth*. Okay, yeah. Which is one of the I think great underrated science fiction movies mm-hmm. uh, directed by Nicholas Rogue. Yep. And uh, the only reason I thought of that name is because I thought, how many aliens do I know in science fiction who would qualify for this? Um, and hmm. of course, Klaatu comes to mind. Uh, the, the the man who fell to Earth comes to mind. I'm I'm just completely uh, free associating at this point. Mm. That led me to think, why do I remember the name Thomas Jerome Newton? I now had read the novel. The novel is yeah. by Walter Tevis, who was yes. not known as a science fiction writer at all. He was known primarily for writing the novel A Hustler, which became uh, a Paul Newman yeah. uh, pool playing movie. Uh, and and that led me to think, the reason I remember the name Thomas Jerome Newton is because that was a terrific terrific character both in uh, in the novel and in the movie it was the best movie performance mm-hmm. that David Bowie has ever given that led me to thinking how many character names do we remember from science fiction and fantasy stories and the, the, the other reason I was thinking about this yeah. was I was talking I was talking to somebody who had read I've talked to two different groups of people who have read all these uh, girl with a dragon tattoo novels oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh the, I have not read any of the novels. I've seen all three of the Swedish movies. I think they're mm-hmm. absolutely terrific. Uh, but 
people either say they're terrific novels or even better than movies, or they say, as this uh, writer in The Guardian did a few weeks ago, that they're just awful, they're full of cliches, and sure. so forth. But my argument is this. Elizabeth Salander is a character name that I remember, and I don't remember, remember character names from movies very well. Then I started thinking, how many character names do you remember from science fiction works Yeah. Uh, that are so distinctive in that sense? Yeah. And, um, and, and Thomas Jerome Newton came to mind. Mike, Michael Valentine Smith, I think, would come to Thorby anybody. Beslam would come to, to mind for me. Yes, exactly. uh, Mycroft Holmes would come to mind for me. Uh, Paul Atreides would come to mind for me. Um, mm-hmm. uh, oh, gosh, there would be... I'd have to stop and think for a minute. Um, even, what's her name? Catis, because that was an odd name. Catis, I forget her last name right now, is the, lead, the protagonist for the Hunger Games novels. Okay, uh, I've not read those, so. Uh, so, I mean, no, there's a handful of them. There is. Uh, that said, I mean, sometimes you remember other, I mean, odd things. Like, I mean, I remember the, the name of the dragon in the Dragon Raoul, but none of the characters. Um, well, uh, we have to almost kind of eliminate characters who are titles, well, like Friday, okay. for example. I would remember or, uh, Signe Mallory from uh, Down Below Station is a character okay. that I remember, you know. Um, it, it would, yeah, there's a batch of them when you begin to match them back to... Writers, but I couldn't tell. I mean, I read. Um, in fact, I read the the Moton God's Eye several times back when I was a teenager, but I couldn't tell you the name of the character in that book. In fact, mm-hmm. I'm not sure I remember any detail of that book now. In truth, I've read all the early Al Reynolds novels, but I don't remember any of the characters from them. Um, what was the name of the guy from Accelerando? Uh, Manfred Max. Oh, Manfred, Manfred Max. Max. That's yeah. that's a that's a memorable name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Well, generally, no. I think if a book is good, generally you'll remember it. Don't you think? Well, I think what it says is that at some point, uh, and I, I suppose, uh, I, if, if you go back far enough, I suppose people of a certain age remember Johnny Cross from Slan. Yeah. Um, but uh, what, it's, what it's doing is sort of asking you if at some point science fiction and fantasy became so character-based. I mean, Lord of the Rings is... It's not even fair to talk about Lord of the Rings because no. now you've got the movies, but you know, Frodo and Bilbo and sure, sure. Sam Gamgee and so forth and so on. Uh, but there's a certain point at which characters, uh, whether or not they're what we consider well-developed, rounded, mainstream characters, you know, kind of um, uh, George Eliot characters, mm-hmm. David Copperfield characters, mm-hmm. whether or not they're like that, there's a certain point science fiction developed iconic characters. Yes. And for most of its history, it didn't really. Yeah, um, yeah. For most of its history, we think of the ideas, we think of the settings, we think of the authors, uh, but but the characters kind of uh, come and go. I think probably most people would remember. Um, well, I was going to say, um, okay, I, I said most people are going to remember this now and not remember. But the, <laughs> so, uh, Harry, most people would remember Harry Seldon. Yeah, yeah, yes. But Harry Seldon was virtually a theme in that book rather than the character. True. How many people remember? Okay, here's a name: Hober Mallow. No, no. Cobra Mallow was the protagonist of, I think, the first two novellas in the um, Wow, I'd have to go uh, back and I, I haven't read them in 30 years, Gary. Well, I mean, but this is this is what I mean. When a character name sticks with you, it sticks with you. For, you mentioned Mike Roft Holmes. Yes. You're going back 100 years with that name. No, I'm not. I'm going back to 1967. Mike Roft Holmes was invented by Arthur Conan Doyle. I am aware of that. However, I, since we were talking about science fiction books, I was actually talking about Mike Roft... Um, the computer from the Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Okay, gotcha. I thought you were talking. Okay, that's that's very interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I was being a nerd. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, you could sound well, marginally are, more. <laughs> I, uh, there's, um, you know, the uh, when you think of classic novelists uh, from from uh, Dickens to, to Faulkner to Hemingway, now you, you remember characters' names. That's because they become the center of the novel. My argument is that that has happened on uh, more than infrequently uh, in science fiction and fantasy, but not as frequently as it might. Do you yeah. remember the name of major characters in uh, Zelazny's uh, Amber series? Can I tell you? I couldn't read them. Really? I, I, I love I, those. I know, and so did Joe Walton. I, I kind of think maybe I was wrong. I have to go back. But I, try, I bought a copy of Nine Princes in Amber. I think I may even have it somewhere. And yeah. I found it utterly unreadable. I, I remember reading four or five chapters and going, blech, and putting it aside. We're on completely different pages here. <laughs> I remember reading. I remember reading Nine Princes in Amber, and I'd I'd, I'd read Zelazny. I mean, I'd read yep. Rose for Ecclesiastes, yep. and the two things that struck me was one is he's really having fun here. He's he's yep. kind of out, and the second thing is he's invented hard-boiled fantasy. Uh, he's, 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 he's he's there's as much Raymond Chandler in these characters as there is of uh, of any of these classic fantasy. And I, th I thought this is this is just a lot of fun. Yeah. The mythological stuff didn't work. To be, to be honest, I love the Amber series way more than I love novels like Lord of Light, which are now regarded as his classics. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I actually ha I have a set of the Amber books, and I, I was just checking because I'm I'm in my office surrounded by books, right, and CDs mm -hmm. and crap. But anyway, uh, and I, do, I didn't keep my copy of Nine Princes in Amber, but I do have a, com a complete set of the books. I was sent in some sort of trade paperbacky thing. And, you know... This is Corwin, who's the lead character, right? Um, Comes back I, to mind immediately, of course. I, I guess I kept it. I kept this edition. It's a Fantasy Masterworks edition. Because I sort of felt I should. I feel like I should have read these books. Because, I'm, you know, talk about Tansy and uh, her whole, you know, should and everything else. They're a classic of the field. Yada, yada, yada. Should have read them. Should have loved them. Maybe I read them at the wrong time. Uh, maybe I should go back to them. Of course, in the rush of, in which you and I are caught, in the terribly evil, in some ways, rush that you and I are caught of new material, mm. you never actually get back to go back and reread these things, do you? No, I don't. Uh, which is why I think your memory is, is, is what controls things at this point, because there are certain novels which I, if I hear the title of the novel, I immediately think of the first character. If I, if I hear The Dispossessed, I think Shivek. Okay. I know exactly who that is. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I have an idea of what he looks like. If I go back and look at, I don't know... Um, Oh, you mentioned the moat in God's eye. No, I have yeah. no clue as to who those characters were. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if I could name a single Larry Niven character. Um, oh yeah, Lewis Wu. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. I mean, you got to be. I mean, not that I'm saying I'd have to go back and reread the book because I haven't read Ringworld in 200 years either. But the name sticks out even if the character doesn't. I don't know whether if I were to go back and reread it, I would find him a distinctive character. Uh, and I'm not saying pro or con. I'm saying I wouldn't remember. Um, but that, that name does stick out for me. But at the time you read the novel, that name somehow emblazoned itself in your memory in a way that a lot of science fiction characters don't. True. Um, and, and, and that's that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. Is, is what about Schmendrick the Magician? Schmendrick is no it's, it's a no-brainer. I mean, that's uh, partly because it's a very distinctive name because it's a it's 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 a um, insouciant name. It is. It's like you, you you don't take a fantasy character and name him like a borscht belt comedian, but <laughs> but Beagle Pe Peter Beagle did that and 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 it completely worked. I don't remember the name of the I don't remember the name of the unicorn offhand. 
Can I, can I just say that I'm about to get thrown out of the club, by the way? Oh. Never read it. <laughs> you never read The Last Unicorn? No, never read it. Mm-hmm. And in fact, because this will tie our whole podcast together in one neat package you watch, my first exposure to Schmendrick the Magician was reading Peter Beagle's Sleight of Hand last week, which is his new collection, which opens with a story called The Woman Who Married the Man in the Moon, which is the first new Schmendrick story. And chronologically, I believe the first Schmendrick story, because this is yes. way before the last the, unicorn. The, the last unicorn, right? Yes. Uh, and ties it together because remember I mentioned the waxy feel on a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sl- Sleight of hand by Peter Beagle. Um. So yes. Oh, I just picked it up, and you're right. It's very waxy. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I mean, and yeah, please, everybody, everybody should buy it. And in fact, it ties in because you review it in your current column. Yes. Yes, I do. And um, you like it. I yeah I like it. I mean I I think there's some minor pieces in it. I think that uh, Peter has learned. Well, Peter's always known how to be a humorist. He's always known yeah. how to be a very funny writer. And there, the thing that struck me about the Last Unicorn when I read it was that this is irreverent in a way that fantasy is not usually irreverent. Yeah. I think there's a temptation, and I'm not giving too much of a preview of the review itself. There are a couple of short pieces in here that are just routines worked out. They're very funny, they are, but they're yeah. insubstantial. Um, but he knows how to do that. And, he does. Uh, I'm going to uh, say something and, very controversial, which will tie it back to our previous podcast, too. Okay. You ready? You ready? Okay. I'm looking at the total list of Beagle collections, and with the exception of one, he says egotistically, they're all kind of the wrong book. The wrong book? They're all the wrong book. He's done five collections, basically, or, or you know, yeah, four really, but, you know, but we'll, call it, we'll, we'll call it five, because you can include the Fantasy Worlds. The Tachyon collections. Yeah, there's the Rhinoceros Recorded Nietzsche, the line between, we never talk about my brother in sleight of hand. Uh, are the main co- collections, which uh, tie in as well across to the best of that was done last year. The reason that I argue that they're all the wrong book is because um, there are two or three great collections in there, which have been watered down to four good collections by exactly what you're talking about, by including one or two stories that perhaps could have been, you know, where we're just not major work. I mean, I, and I can pick up, I mean, I've got my copy of Sleight of Hand here right now, right? Mm-hmm. And t- to my mind, you know, stories like The Rabbi's Hobby, right? Major, major story. Um, oh, absolutely. And there's several others in here that I, I think very high love. I really like La Lune to Tend. I like Sleight of Hand. Uh, I thought um, The Bridge Partner actually was surprisingly strong. Um, right. But then there's The Best Worst Monster, which is a joke. Which is, yeah, 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 yeah. And if you go back, I think the, the other collections are perhaps even a little bit more uh, prone to this because one of the, the, the you know, when it comes to the curious case of Peter S. Beagle, in many ways he's become a much more substantial short story writer over time. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, mm. I think he, but but I think he he also is a writer who can do ambitious, uh, autobiographical, very complex, very mm-hmm. moving stories. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Sleight of Hand is one of those stories. Mm-hmm. The Rabbi's Hobby is another one of those stories. Uh, but there's another aspect to him, which he's proud of as well. Mm-hmm. How many short story writers can you think of that will put together only the ideal collections you're talking about? Oh, Last I week, know. About, oh, look, oh, we, this we is talk, a nerd we, thing on my behalf, Gary. Absolutely. Uh, totally. I mean, yeah, but, the, but, but writers want okay i remember having a conversation with john crowley once he had a collection of short stories coming out novelties and souvenirs and i i'm sure he doesn't mind my saying this um 
And he had written one of his most pristine, beautiful novellas called The Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. it's not in the book. Yeah. It's I not in the book. I forgot. And, no, he didn't forget. Uh, his, his response was a completely common sense writer's response. I had sold the book. They were publishing the book. They were paying me for the book. Why should I give them another free story at this point? Well, I can tell you that I asked the editor at the mm. time because I got a galley, and she said they forgot. Mm. Now, it may be that he didn't forget and they did, but – yeah. It could it could go either way. I mean, it was meant yeah. to be the best of John Crowley, but something and, and both stories could be true in a, in a sense. Was it the best? Point it was is, the complete stories. Well, it was the complete stories. It was the yeah. yeah. collected stories. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where you well, as you know from having edited books like this, collected stories and complete stories are two different things. Yeah. Yes. Uh, collected stories or stories which we want to collect, complete stories imply that nothing is left out. Yeah. Um, but by and large, when a writer is putting together a collection of stories, they don't necessarily want to show – first of all, most of the writers I know have some aspect of being in love with every story they've written. Oh, sure. sure. And they should. And how, yes. why, how could they go on writing stories if they weren't? Oh, yeah. Um, so, so there is a sense in which um, they want those stories preserved in some fashion. Yeah. We mentioned last week we were talking about the essential, Harlan, uh, the essential Ellison. Yes. And why is there no best of Harlan Ellison? It's the same issue. Writers – you know, want uh, they know that some stories are masterpieces, and they know that some stories are only in their minds pretty good. Um, but they want those stories in a book anyway. Yes, and yeah, I don't blame I, them for that at all. I, I don't and blame I think them either. It, and also, I mean, I'm quibbling. I got to say, sorry to interrupt, but I'm quibbling with, with the difference between one of the best collections of the year and clearly the best collection of the year. Oh, I understand that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. which, which are the two you're talking about to make sure we're on the same page here? Uh, well, with the with the, the the Beagle, I think if he'd knocked out a couple of stories and amalgamated this with the contents of We Never Talk About My Brother, uh, you would have had the best short story collection of the year by a mile, as opposed to having Side to Hand being one of, one of the best short story collections of the year. I think you're probably right there. I, that, that, that there may be a sense of, uh, but but there's a sense of what the market will bear. Oh I'm, sure. And, and Peter Beagle has got. You know, there there are a handful of writers. Jeff Ford is one of them. Uh, Peter Beagle, we can think of all of them, Mary Rickard, Kelly Link. Mm. If the, the, the terrific stories they write are so terrific that most of us who are, who are fans of theirs will go out and buy a book because we know there's not going to be a disappointment. We know no. there's going to be yeah. something in it which is absolutely stunning. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's true. Um, you know, <sighs> interesting. I mean, and I've got to say that I would I would also commend those of you out there. Hello, you know, hello, Mondi boy out there who's not read any Peter Beagle. If you get a chance, go pick up, go check out Mirror Kingdoms, the best of Peter Beagle, which I think will show you everything you need to know as a starting point as to why he's one of the most important writers of the of that we have working today. And I think one of the things that's coming up uh, more and more in his later fiction. And it's, it's, it's interesting yeah. to watch Beagle's reputation sort of rearrange itself because for decades he was the guy who wrote The Last Unicorn. Yeah. And now, partly because of his more recent fiction, people are going back and looking at A Fine and Private Place, which is a wonderful novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one that had much less visibility when it first came out than The Last Unicorn yeah. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to say, I also, also always had an enormous soft spot for Folk of the Air, which was a mid-1980s well, novel. I remember that was that was the one he'd worked on forever. Everybody thought he'd retired from the field. He worked for that. Mm. He worked on that for decades of time. I was frankly a little disappointed with it. 
Um, it was it was it was a good it was it was kind of a good mainstream novel. There was a lot of the uh, Society for Creative Acronism and Acronism stuff in it. Um, it didn't impress me as much as the end Innkeeper song did a few yeah. years later. Well, I can understand that, but I've got to say, see, it was it was also my introduction to Beagle. Ah, because okay. I, not having read, you know, the Last Unicorn. See, I said it out loud now. Um, I can't. <laughs> I know. Uh, the stuff that was kicking around, I, I picked up a copy of um, The Fantasy Worlds of Peter Beagle, right? Hmm. And the only other book around was Folk of the Air, which I'd not read at the time because most of them were unavailable. So the long came the first chance to, in 1986 to, to read a new Peter Beagle novel. I read it. I liked it. Um, and it, it arguably led directly to me editing, and this is me sort of sticking my hand up and acknowledging the prejudice, uh, actually uh, editing Mirror Worlds, the best of Peter Beagle, last year. So, or Mirror Kingdom, mm-hmm. so yeah. Which had some stories in it that appeared before this new collection, which is odd. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you didn't even see that crappy Mia Farrow animated uh, no. cartoon, which I, th- I think actually Peter wrote the screenplay for that. I shouldn't say it was no. crappy. But no, it's... I didn't. Oh, okay. Uh, because and in fact, probably if anything, I think I've seen stills from it, and that would have put me off. It would put you off, and and uh, but it's one of those it's one of those animated cartoons, and I can't remember who the director was. It was somebody who did a lot of commercial animated yeah. cartoons. At the time. And actually, I have to say, having read the Schmendrick story in Sleight of Hand, made me want to go off and read The Last Unicorn. It's very very funny, and there's a lot of verbal wordplay in it. Which uh, and you have to understand when I read the last unicorn and I didn't read it when it came out, but I read it not long after. And I, I was I read it when I was not reading mm-hmm. professionally in the science fiction field. I've been reading stuff like Vonnegut and, and Barth yeah. and postmodern stuff. And, and suddenly here is a writer who was using a lot of these very sophisticated, funny. Uh, the, the amount of time he must have spent working on the speeches that the butterfly makes of this constant wild yeah. free association yes. and song lyrics from the 20s and stuff. It's the kind of stuff that you know now we're accustomed to from people like Michael Swanwick. Nobody had done anything like that in True. the late 60s. True. And this was a complete revelation that you can write a fantasy novel which works as a fantasy novel, which is contemporary sort of postmodern <laughs> verbal yeah, game playing yeah. at the same time, and, and both groups of people can read it and, and get what they want yes, to out of yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, I have not... Now, having said that, I've not reread it in 20 years, okay. probably. But also, I don't... It's, it's one of those books you don't want to reread because that initial impression was so stunning okay. that you hope it'll hold up. Well, I may go reread, I may go reread it, though, or go and read it, but um, to bring us around again towards the end of our mm-hmm. podcast, because we're running very long now, Gary. Oh, we are? Um, what are we learning? We're probably at about an hour 20 or so. Oh, dear. Uh, oh dear I know. They're going to laugh at us. Ian and Kirsten are really going to have a go at us. But anyway, or at least me, not you. You're you're safe. Me, I'm going to have big, I'm going to be in trouble. Yeah. But the book I'm reading on my Kindle, I'm reading two on the Kindle at the moment. I'm reading Embassy Town as well, and I'm switching back and forth, which is, though we never said so, the new China Mieville book, and which, yes. has been re- which has been packaged beautifully in the UK, by the way. But I'm also reading Dancing, uh, Dancing with Bears, which is the new Michael Swamick novel. Oh, yes. Thanks for reminding me of that. That's exactly what we were talking about earlier. I have that on my Kindle. I was going to cover it in my next column, and until you mentioned it right now, I'd forgotten I have it yep. because it's not sitting in front of me. And I'm a third of the way through it, and I can tell you, you're going to be the second reviewer for Locust to review it, Gary, not the first because you took too long. Ha ha. Oh, Because our friend, our, our dear friend, our colleague, Adrienne Martini, has re- uh, reviews the book. And it's fun to say it's, she I mean, likes we, it. We could talk about yeah. 
I well, I I am an admirer of Swanwick's in all sorts of ways, and I should be, and everybody else should be as well. Uh, but uh, that uh, that raises a question which we could talk about at a later podcast, or we could yes. talk about sometime, or maybe uh, uh, on on a locals podcast. Even. Yes. Why yes. does a book get a couple of reviews? And if there's enough in a book, first of all, it comes back to a couple of people. I'm going to read the book whether whether I review yeah. it or not. The other book I'm reading right now, I should mention, is Eclipse Four. Oh yes, uh, which I, actually, I have a physical arc of. It looks lovely. I've never uh, seen one. And really? Yeah. Well, it's because you live on the other side of the world and you don't get things. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> but but apart from that, it's got it, it, it's I, I I've not the only story in it I've read before was the um, and well actually I've not even read. I heard Andy Duncan yeah. read his story, story, which is a classic Andy Duncan story. But I'm looking at some of these other. Uh, people who I don't think you've had Jim Kelly. I don't think you've had no. a Joe Walton story. Pe- no. Most of these are people who have not been in previous uh, no. No. eclipses. So I'm I'm very anxious to take a look at that. I'm just yeah I'm I'm at that stage still. You know I'm, I'm a, I was saying to someone yesterday uh, and no, nobody who's got a story in Eclipse Four should pay any attention to this statement because it's got nothing to do with the real book. But um, I just ha- I'm at that stage where I, I don't think I could look at a review anyway. I can't tell you whether it's the best eclipse yet or the worst eclipse yet. Uh, I have no perspective. Uh, I like stories individually, but I have no perspective on the book as a whole. And, and that, that's completely typical, by the way. And you, know, you shouldn't take it as anything uh, about Eclipse for itself. But I typically, once the book's actually handed in and getting ready to come out, I have no perspective at all. It'll be another six, 12 months before I've got any perspective on it. Well, you know, one of the things you might keep in mind is that there's no such thing as the best eclipse or the worst eclipse. What's going to happen is the life of the stories after the anthology. And the reason yeah. I say that is that I just finished, uh, well, as you know, this uh, massive collection of, of Carol, 88, 88 Carol M. stories, which turns out to be volume one. <laughs> can, can we just and, say that sounds like a, like an indie movie? It does. <laughs> anyway, yep. So I was thinking... Uh, the, a lot of the most interesting stories from the mid part of her career were from Orbit and from uh, Universe. Yeah. And uh, it occurred to me that does anybody at this point in time worry about what the best Orbit anthology was or what the best Universe anthology was? No. What what happens is you find Gene Wolfe stories and Carol Imswiller stories and 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 Le Guin stories yeah. and, uh, and 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 uh, Joanna Russ stories re- reappearing year after year. So the only way you know when original an original anthology is successful is 20 or 30 years later when you find yeah. out where these stories yeah. resurface. Yes, I think that's true. I think that's very true. Um, and I mean, I can begin to see it. I mean, it's nice to see stories from the Eclipse series being the title stories of, anthology, of collections. I mean, Sleight of Hand is an Eclipse story by Peter Beagle. Um, the most recent uh, Jeff Ford collection was named after the story that he had in Eclipse, I think. And yeah, so there's... A few others, you know, like that. So, and I think there are stories that will definitely stand the test of time and stay in print. And that is perhaps the greatest test of all. You know, wh- whether in ten years anybody remembers any of the stories or if it was just a transient thing. And nobody can tell right now. But you know, I'm still at that stage where, because Eclipse Four didn't come out in October of last year when it might have been expected to come out, the honeymoon for Eclipse Three went on a lot, lot longer, and people have been very kind about it. And so there's that feeling of following on from that book, and that probably makes it even more a pronounced feeling of just not knowing. 
Yeah, and there are stories that you know you're, you're mentioning. You, you mentioned the Jeff Ford story and the Peter Beagle story. There's no doubt that the uh, uh, Karen Joy Fowler story is is going hmm. to have a long life. But one of the interesting things, if you actually go back and look at copies of um, of, of Universe in Orbit, is that you're going to think, "Wow, there are two classic hmm. of stories." Uh, I, 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 there'd be a James Salas story, for example, yeah. and you're thinking, yeah. "Wow, that's probably pretty good," but I've never heard of it since. Sure. Um, and, and so you really don't know, and that's, that's got to be the same. And, and on an annual basis, it's got to be the same feeling that somebody like uh, Sheila, Sheila Williams has. Yes, at, I'm sure. Uh, at, well, particularly, particularly if you realize she was working directly on the magazine long before she became editor. You know, right. editor so it must all blur a little bit, I'm sure. Uh, and look, hey, I, I look forward to the possibility of doing an Eclipse 12 and looking back going, huh, what about a, those early eclipses? Yeah, how about that? But who knows and, if that's possible? <laughs> well, let's see. Let's, 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 let's see how it holds up. I mean, it's, uh, it's a way of getting terrific stories into print uh, in, at the very least. And I've not read, like I say, I've not read anything uh, in it, and I've heard the Andy Duncan story. Uh, the best you can hope to do as an anthologist is to get a couple of great stories along with a bunch of good stories. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is that nobody really knows which are the great stories and which are the pretty good stories right out of the bat. No, no, no. Uh, it's very when you look at you can talk to editors or you read memoirs of editors, and it's very rare that um, I can't remember whether it was Bob Mills or I think it was probably Bob Mills who bought Flowers for Algernon. That was mm -hmm, 1959, mm -hmm. and and it's clear from everything I've talked to Dan Keyes about it. I've never I never had a chance to meet Robert Mills, uh, but there was a clear sense that. We've got something really special here. We've yeah, got something yeah. that's going to live forever. I don't know how often that happens in an editor's lifetime. No. I mean, I've had one or two moments where I thought, yeah. But then i got to tell you, sometimes you go, yes. And the rest of the yeah. world goes, yeah, no. Yeah, right. Or, quite frustratingly, you go, yeah. And it turns out that the, the, the writer's on a streak that year and has another story that sits on top of it. And everyone goes, no. I mean, yeah, sure, any other year. But this year, there's that one, too. And that yeah, does right. happen as well. I've had that happen. So, you know. And anyway, yeah, on that yeah. note, we've been talking for two years, Gary. And these oh, poor people, they must want to go off. I mean, it's got to be bedtime for Jeff uh, in, in, in New Jersey. Poor Cheryl, when she's listening to this, she's probably get up, get on with her day. So we, we should wind it up, call it a night, uh, we call it a day. Yeah. And people who listen to this on treadmills were probably giving them heart failure. <laughs> <laughs> on that happy note. Okay, we will talk next week. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you, my friend. Okay. Okay, bye. Goodbye.